Hi there, I'm Deep Dylan. Welcome to your AI Injection, the podcast where we discuss state-of-the-art techniques and in artificial intelligence with a focus on how these capabilities are used to transform organizations, making them more efficient, impactful, and successful. Welcome back to your AI injection. This week, we're speaking with Anoop Joshi. Anoop teaches the application of LiDAR technology, satellite imagery, and field data to map and monitor carbon stocks in forests. Can't wait to talk with him and understand more about how satellite imagery and LiDAR is used in carbon accounting. Hi, Anoop. Thanks so much for being here. So to kick us off, tell us about the Greenhouse Gas Management Institute and your role there. Greenhouse Gas Management Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to building capacity for greenhouse gas management. By management, we mean, you know, we need a, to build a capacity in the countries, especially in developing countries, to measure, monitor, and verify greenhouse gas emissions. And so we have a team of experts who deal with the different sectors of Greenhouse Gas Management Institute. And then I look mostly on the land sector. So it's uh, greenhouse emissions from forest and other land use. So tell me a little bit like, you know, who are your customers and what do they engage you to do? Right now, trying to build a capacity in the developing countries. And we have a project. You know, the current one is in a 12 English-speaking Caribbean countries. So the goal is to build a capacity in the region so that the countries uh, don't have to depend on international consultants for their uh, reporting purpose. Like with the Paris Agreement, every country who is in signature to the Paris Agreement has to uh, report their greenhouse gas emissions from all the sectors every two years. So to do that, we need to build a capacity in country, if possible. Our goal is to build a hub where we bring the expertise from different countries and so that the team could work to help all the countries in the region. Tell us a little bit about what does it mean to have this capacity? Like, what do you get the countries to do uh, with respect to their reporting requirements? Every country has to do their national communication with where they show what the, uh, their greenhouse gas emissions are, what plants they have done to re- reduce it. And so to begin with, they first need to uh, monitor uh, greenhouse uh, gas emissions from different sector. And let me speak this more on towards the land, forest and other land use sector. So the forestry sector itself is uh, more complicated than other sector because the forest acts both as a carbon source and sink. If we burn, then you are releasing the carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which is one of the greenhouse gases. So the trees, uh, through photosynthesis, is use the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to build the food and then store it. So in, in that way, when trees grow, more carbon is stored in a, in a tree. So, uh, so in, in this process, what it does is uh, it sucks in the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and then stores in the body of the tree. So this will be a ne- negative emissions, or we call it removals or sequestration. So this is the part of a carbon sequestration that we hear in in the greenhouse gas emission lingo. So just to kind of like understand a little bit better, you've got these countries, they're trying to report their emissions. So they need to figure out their negative emissions or their carbon sinks. What's the role of LIDAR and remote sensing here? 
So with the LIDAR, what we will be able to do is to get the height of the forests. When you talk about the carbon sequestrations or you know, uh, the carbon stock in a forest, we, uh, we can only measure indirectly. So there's no instrument to measure, as of now, the carbon content in a tree. So, so what does LIDAR help us is, you know, with the uh, LIDAR techniques, you can build a model of tree heights in the forest. So you have to measure a, a diameter of the tree at the breast height and then height of the tree to calculate the amount of biomass in the tree. And then you project that into amount of the um, biomass in a hectare of a lands. And the carbon is roughly 50% of a biomass. So what LIDAR does is with LIDAR, then you can have a wall-to-wall -wall coverage of a forest. And in that way, you can more precisely measure the amount of a carbon in its forest. So you've got a country in a place like the Caribbean, which is a relatively small landscape. How are they getting their LIDAR imagery? How much of their national boundaries are they getting LIDAR imagery for? And... Um, um, so the countries the Caribbean haven't used the LIDAR so far because of the cost prohibitive. It's very expensive Un until you, you got LIDAR on a satellite and can scan the globe. Uh, so I just want to be clear. So, so today you can't buy LIDAR data from satellites. So is uh, that what you're saying? Mostly the LIDAR data has been confined to the you know, risk countries who can offer. So for example, the U.S. has you know, wall-to-wall -wall either. But in other countries, it's hard. And I was involved in a project in Nepal in 2011-12, where we had a budget from a donor, a Finnish government, to do a LIDAR, but we had a limited amount. So we had to do a strip sampling and then build a model out of that. So that's a lot better than, you know, trying to do a random sampling of a forest or stratified random sample and getting uh, information. So with a LIDAR, it'll be faster and more accurate. So let's, let's kind of dig in there a little bit because I want to kind of understand how, how this works from the national vantage. So the, so the country in this case, Nepal, says, hey, we need to understand our negative carbon emissions for this forest. So they hired you. You have a sponsor that helps pay the, the bill. You then sample the forest from a LIDAR vantage, so you don't have full LIDAR coverage of the entire forest. Mm -hmm. And then you need to still have somebody on the ground to actually measure the, the tree heights and diameters, and then you construct a model. Is that? So you do a, a subsample of the LIDAR, right? LIDAR covers the area. You do enough to build a model, and then you have a LIDAR coverage, and you have a GPS coordinate of a plot. And you build a model based on the ground data, and you train the model, you verify the model, and once you get a, the verification as good or close to what you want, then you use a LIDAR to improve your sampling. So in that way, you can increase your in the accuracy more, right? So this gives you a carbon stock. How much carbon do you have in the forest? Uh, in case how much carbon stock you have in, in the different forest types in Nepal. So that's a, well, a half of an equation for getting a greenhouse gas emissions yeah. or sequestration. So that's called, what we call is a emission factor. That, that's how much carbon is in the ground. And the other part we need is activity data. So activity data is how much a land changes from one type to another. So for example, how much forest land changed into agriculture land 
our forest land changes to settlement. So if, if the forest goes from in you know, a forest to the settlement, what do we say? Whatever carbon that's in the tree, we lost that. So that's emitted. I want to understand a couple of things. So like as a government, in this case, Nepal, they could have done no LIDAR, no AI, no machine learning, anything. They could simply have sent down samplers, like human samplers, to, to sample various plots of the forest, and they could have come up with their technique. What's the relative cost difference between them going with a completely traditional manual sampling approach versus a hybrid approach where you have to random sample to teach the models to get more coverage? And like, what's the relative um, benefit that you're getting and what's the cost difference? Well, it's, it's a time, all right? And it's also cost because if you are doing a, a country, then you have to send your uh, field crew to go out and measure it. So that's a lot of money and management. And it's also time consuming. So if you only sample manually, first of all, the number of places you manually sample is larger. And secondly, every year you have to keep sampling those teams out. But if you build a machine learning model, then the number of samples you need to get a reasonable model are lower in a oh. given year, but then you can reapply that model across the years. Is that basically, is that, is that about right? That, that's that's about right. That, okay. That's right. And also what I was trying to come here is LiDAR is one part, right? That's uh, expensive and, and not very commonly used. So the other part is general remote sensing data. So Landsat satellite data, which is free now, and you have to train that. So that's a part of missile learning, right? So you got a random forest models, different algorithms in, in a neural network models that can help analyze the forest better and then you take the change in landscape. So how much forest is lost, you know, forest can uh, turn from forest land into grassland or cropland to settlement. Yeah. So here, here uh, the, you know, machine learning or, you know, AI comes in effect. You know, that's more used right now than LIDAR itself because of the cost. So... We recently had a guest on that works for a pretty innovative company called Pachama. And one of the challenges that they had was access to training data. And I'm curious, when you go in as a, on the kind of consulting side and work directly with the government, are these governments opening up the data and making it publicly available for whatever LIDAR or imagery that they purchase? Sharing data is still not you know, as common as we would like to see. So some governments are protective. It really depends on country to country. But, it, you know, what's happening right now is like, you know, there's a lot of organizations and the EU has a mandate for them. So they're working on the global level and we got three global level land cover maps. So one is, it's a based on uh, satellite data, uh, Landsat satellite data, European Sentinel data, and Sentinel data is 10 meter resolution in uh, optical data as well as they have a radar data, Sentinel-1. So what they're they doing is they're combining their radar data where the cloud cover is high, just like in the Caribbean areas or in, in uh, tropical moist forest areas, there are often, you know, the cloud is hanging all around the year and it's hard to get a clear satellite map. So they are combining their radar data and optical data from Sentinel and bringing a, a clear mosaic of the world, of the globe, and then applying a you know, neural network, artificial machine learning to classify the, those data into different land use categories. 
And their categories are pretty much aligned with um, UN you know, IPCC. Um, so IPCC has a guidelines and they have a land use of six land use classes, forest land, grassland, cropland, wetland, settlement and other land use. So they are classifying that at the global level. So that's going to provide the smaller countries, developing countries who are resource poor to use that data to be able to monitor their greenhouse gas emissions from the land, land use sector. Is that where you think the overall system or industry is going, that there's going to be a handful of entities that can cover the entire planet and have models that can then be applied to any new specific land coverage, visual or LIDAR or radar information for a given country? Yeah, it's going that way. I mean, you know, at the, at the global level. But then again, global level data, and if you want uh, really country level and even down, if you want a project level data, you need a more more accuracy and more in a higher resolution. And I think that's where the, the private com- companies are coming. Because like when you go down to the project level and when you start trading the carbon, you know, which is, we think it's heading to, uh, you know, the goal is to have a carbon trade like our stock market. At that point, it'll be, very important to get the quality of data. So the high resolution, we'd have a very low errors or high confidence interval. And I think that's where the private companies are geared up to. That's my personal reading. So when we talk about, you know, the overall emissions monitoring problem, monitoring the natural carbon sinks is kind of one aspect of it. What do you think are some of the other areas that are going to you know, play a pretty significant role in, in terms of like reducing emissions. Monitoring and it's the speed, right? The accuracy and speed, that's what is lacking right now is, you know, we have a tools to do it, but it's not in, in near real time. So that's that's where, you know, we need to move forward. We can do a lot from satellite or from um, from remotely. So there are models that, that are looking on, um, on the water models uh, the temperature models, and, and so this is these are all where AI comes in effect and will be you know helpful, like trying to get get data from different systems into one place and then analyzing those and, and getting results. You're listening to your AI injection brought to you by Zionix.com. That's X-Y-O-N-I-X.com. Check out our website for more content or if you need help injecting AI into your organization. So let's fast forward a few years. Let's say we've got this system that you're describing that has the accuracy and speed to measure consistently. You get high coverage across the spatial boundaries, maybe a monthly snapshot um, from every place on the planet. And now you've got good accounting of forests growing and contracting. How do you get from that to carbon credit purchases that incentivize an individual farmer ultimately or landowner or whatever from not cutting down a tree so that they actually presumably get a check? Um, where you have um, projects where, you have, where they can sell their carbon credits. So, so this, this, uh, with the data, you can go back to the specifically explicit areas, right? In the project area. And with the data from 
uh, data showing that what is happening there for us is getting growing or it's been cut down. So uh, so how, you know, how it's growing and if it's keep on growing, and then it'll tell you how much carbon is sequestered per year in that area. And, and based on that, uh, the projects would be paid or you'll get the carbon credits or, you know, you'll have, you, okay, if your project area is a thousand hectares and you have the carbon stock of um, uh, hundred tons per hectare, then you have total carbon stock of um, that times the area. And if, if you're, if you're showing that if your project area from the satellite image is remaining same, it's growing. So it's not cut down. Um, so what you do is the, uh, the trees keep on growing. And as they grow on, they add X amount of carbon to the forest. So you are seeing the, how much carbon is adding onto that. And that will be your carbon credits. How do you model risk into this equation? So, you know, if I have two forests, one that's sitting, you know, on the boundary in the Amazon and has a high risk and exposure to being cut down next year versus some other forest that's maybe sitting in a wealthy part of a Western nation that has a lower probability of being cut down. How does that get priced into the carbon? You have to build a model to project it, right? I think you need to get in, in your socioeconomic status, of like what's the likelihood of cut down. And also you have to think about the natural causes, right? So what, what is the chance of a forest fire? So, or what's the chances of disease getting in the forest and killing the forest? Uh, we need to uh, you know, account for those scenarios and build a scenario-based models and, and build in enough cushion so that you can mitigate risk. So how far are we away from a world where that farmer on the edge of the Amazon's burn is getting paid? And what exactly needs to happen to close the loop? Because it's not happening. You know, they're burning their forests down, not just there, but all over mm-hmm. um, for paltry amounts of money that they're getting. You know, they might put up a handful or maybe 20, 30 cows or something. So what's, what's not happening right now? And how many years away are we from them getting a check? Well, I, I think there are two issues, right? And I mean, like from, from the scientific point of view, science is advancing and more tools are coming up for us to able to measure and monitor. But then the, there's a other side is the government. Somebody has to build the rules and enforce it. Because, uh, you, know, we, uh, you know, scientists are, we can tell, build our models, predict this and, this and tell them what's going to happen. But we, won't ha- we don't have uh, authorities to implement it. If the governments uh, don't have a plan to enforce it, and, you know, there's a lot of uh, illegal things going on, illegal logging, illegal burning. So there need to be a reinforcement and there needs to be a, a legal policy framework that's going to dictate what happens on the ground, right? So am I to take away that this is just not going to happen because governments are just not going to do it, even if we get the science right? Uh, no, I think governments are going to do it, you know, as long as there's, uh, there's a public pressure, right? So with the, with the tools right now, like, you know, global forest was where they are showing that the, the, the governments are saying, you know, we don't have any deforestation. No, we haven't cut down the forest. But the data is showing the forest is going down. So when you can bring those and keep in the table, you have a better chance of arguing and convincing them. Or in other way, 
putting a pressure on top. For example, a government says, we, uh, you know, we haven't, you know, our forest is intact. We haven't cut down or nothing's uh, happening here. But if you can show the satellite data from two period where it's burned or it's cut down and bring the other actors, general public, right, uh, media, and, and then uh, th- that'll be another way of forcing the governments to get the work done. So are you seeing that happening today with the work you've done and the governments you are working with? You know, if you look to the um, Brazil, you know, they have a very good system of monitoring and then pressuring the government. Their forest, um, deforestation rate is gone down. But again, 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 when there's a government changes, there is always risk of you know, getting the you know, regulations um, reversed. But what we have is we have these tools where we can put a pressure. And then I think the pressure as well as other thing is education, right? So we, we need to make a, a general public understand what's going on. So if, if we have a data and uh, through now social media or through the websites, if you can show the people on the ground what's happening, I think there's a better chance of the people who are in the conservation field or who, who are in the advocacy field to bring this up and, uh, and the pressure the governments to get the things done right. Aren't we like way beyond all of that? Like even if we decrease the rate of deforestation, we're still going to exceed 1.5 degrees Celsius. Like, why are we still talking about decreasing deforestation when we should really be talking about massive areas of land being reforested? And why are we talking about activists and like putting pressure instead of just writing checks? Well, I, I think, you know, this, uh, I mean, the, the question is, where is the money coming from, Right. So yeah. somebody has to give the money, and if it's coming from governments, then do the government have a will to pay for that and a mechanism to go that into a farmer's hand? Well, I mean, but we know we know so many companies that are trying to buy high quality carbon credits, and there's not actually a lot of high quality carbon credits out there. So why don't we start there? We don't have to have political fights to have. Microsoft buy quality carbon credits. We just need the mechanics in place so that they can swipe their corporate card and have the money flow. I mean, you know, that sounds good. But the problem here is the forest, most of the place is not owned by a farmer, right? So so uh-huh. still the large amount of forest is owned by governments. I have an, uh, another paper that we're working on, or we look to how much forest is left in the, um, the globe. In ter- I mean, terrestrial ecosystems. And we, uh, you know, our estimate is about, so we, we still have about 50% forest left that's not, not under agriculture or other human use. And out of that, you know, significant portion of that is uh, indigenous people's land. Okay. But still there's a, this issue of who owns the land and who get the direct benefit. So it's, it's so most of the mostly it's controlled by the governments and that that's having been oh, one of the sticky points. Aren't governments just as likely to change their behavior if they get more money in their pocket? Okay, so that's the that's another mechanism that's having uh, some issues here. Indigenous people they are using it, but they don't have titles. They don't have land titles, and so so paying them is hard for the companies or you know for the people to get the money out of there. Oh, I see. I'm trying to understand this, but it's like the ownership is not clear and whoever is burning it down, they're like leveraging the land, but they don't have clear title. So you can't necessarily put the money in the pocket of the person that's burning down the forest. 
Right, like, like you know, if you say Amazon forest, so it's you know most of the forest is still government land. So people are you know burning down to get a coal or burning down to do uh, uh, farming, but still, uh, you know, title hasn't been converted to them, right? So they are doing some illegal kind of well, stuff. But presumably, they're bribing the government officials, and that amount of money can be computed, and this system could basically pay those government officials more than they get from the illegal bribes. Logically, that makes sense and uh, you know, it can be done, but that's not happening. Yeah, I guess that's, that's what not I'm, happening. I'm trying and to like, get at. It's like, how, how do we get beyond uh, well, corruption in this part of the world? Because I think I understand the problem a little bit more. If you have illegal actors going in and burning down forests so that they can just graze their animals on the land, then that's a different problem because, yeah, you don't have a database of owners to go write a check to. But presumably, whoever owns the land, if you give them a check, then they're incentivized in order to get the next check and the next check and the next check, they're incentivized to maintain the, the forest, right? I mean, you know, that's the whole, the UN stuff is having government understand this stuff, uh, fund them so that they can uh, maintain forest as a forest. So going back to the AI roles, are there other areas that you see kind of machine learning and AI helping out in the bigger picture of global emissions reductions that maybe is not just LIDAR and imagery and like monitoring? Like, are there other areas that are maybe emerging that you know about? Uh, I, I think, you know, the machine learning or AI is going to be a critical part because so the amount of data that you needed from the trim side is so high and, uh, you know, you know, just trying to do on a, a piece by piece is we don't have a time to do that. So we need to have a, a more accurate models that, you know, that can be done faster and then present the information out there, get down into a, a more accurate information. What can you say is just somebody who's on the ground talking to these governments, working with the state all the time, is this going to work? Are we going to be able to reduce our emissions to the level we need to and extract enough carbon from the atmosphere? Yeah, I am hopeful because you know, the amount of well, the understanding on the ground, the people are talking about the um, whole climate change issue and how, how the forest can help them is, you know, is, is a is increasing. And, you know, when I used to travel and talk to the people around, more people are aware of it because people are directly, you know, have been suffering from the climate-related issues. Now, with, you know, unpredictable rainfalls or, you know, monsoon having... Wildfires, you know, everything. Uh, um, uh, yeah, and the hurricanes having a higher impact, you know, high strength, more forest fires. And so people are getting more aware of it and, uh, and and then other side is the corporate world, right? That's another driving force. When public and car- corporate starts paying attention to it, you know, uh, now with, um, with more information, they are looking at the corporates are looking through their supply chains and seeing how, oh, you know, are their supply chains clean or is, is the forest has been cut while palm uh, supplies are sustainable. So this, so there's a hope and. Uh, so we are running out of time, but I, I have a positive attitude. So, uh-huh. you know, it, it won't be easy, but I think we are moving in that direction, but we need to get more speed.
So, Anup, tell us a little bit about your teaching and how it, it ties into carbon sequestration and, and AI. So I do teaching at the University of Minnesota. I, I do a, a research on the side. So what, what we do is we are looking at, uh, looking at the effect of climate change, um, not only in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, but also how it's affecting to the, uh, the biodiversity. So the biodiversity is another aspect of it, you know, how climate change, like say in the case of vegetation, how vegetations are changing. Um, changing with it, and with the change of it, vegetation, it's going to affect the uh, biodiversity or even the animals, right? And so what we're seeing here in Minnesota is there's, a, you know, uh, more wildlife diseases um, it's, it's related to the climate change. Like, you know, we have, we used to have a very, very cold winters. We, uh, and now we are having those lesser number of those per year. And then we are having like emerald ash borer on the trees that's a pace and killing the trees. And we are also seeing, as it is getting more warmer, the, uh, the, the vegetation in the colder climates are moving north, you know, slightly north. So, 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 uh, um, so that's a one point that climate change is having effect. And, and, the, uh, and what we're trying to do is trying to bring other more resources to the students so they can use, um, uh, you know, uh, Google Earth Engine platform, or where they have a free satellite data, and collaborate, and you know, uh, look at more specially, especially uh, explicit way of seeing how uh, how the vegetations are changing um, in in a uh, in a landscape based on based on climatic uh, parameters like you know uh, temperature, rainfall. Um, and uh, looking at those. Got it. So one of the things you mentioned was, you know, the importance of biodiversity. And it got me thinking, if we're talking about like carbon uh, markets where you can buy offsets, how do you think about like the role of pricing in biodiversity into those credits? Is that how we should think about it? Absolutely. Our team, what we're trying looking to is it's not only the carbon credits, but the quality of the carbon credits. So we want to bring in the biodiversity component of it. So if you have a forest land that has higher biodiversity, let's say, so you have a forest that has tigers in it. Mm -hmm. And to have a tigers in it, you need to have enough prey. So you need more deer in it. So in a variety of animals. So if you look, come up with a metric so that put an additional value added to the wildlife or biodiversity component on the top of a carbon. So in that way, you as an individual want to invest your money. You might want to buy and buy carbon stocks or carbon credits in an area where it is high biodiversity because what you'll be doing in turn is you'll be supporting biodiversity and also maintaining greenhouse gas emissions. So we need to integrate this so that you can, just like you're in a, in a stock market, so you can, you can have a higher price of your carbon in an area where it has high biodiversity. Yeah, and I could also even see an argument for not caring about biodiversity for some percentage of your portfolio with respect to a carbon offset. So like there's a company that basically grows a bunch of vegetation and turns it into an oil and injects it underground. There's no biodiversity benefit, but 
at least I know for sure that this much carbon got taken out of the atmosphere. So people may choose to put their money into different types of credits and maybe allocate them in different ways. It, it feels like priority one is don't exceed 1.5 degrees Celsius or really bad things happen, including biodiversity loss. Cool. And then priority two is like all of the other decisions that get us there. Would you agree with that? Or do you think there's like a different way? No, to look at it? Uh, well, I, I mean, like if you don't think about forest and you think about monoculture, if you don't think about biodiversity, those forests are more prone to risk from the disease. Sure, sure. So if you want to do a risk assessment of your forest, then what you're investing uh, for your carbon, then I think the, the biodiversity comes into the equation. So if, uh, you gr- if you grow a bunch of crops uh-huh. and then burn them, then clearly you didn't sequester any carbon other than the duration the crops were alive. Right. But if you take those crops and turn them into some kind of oil and inject it deep underground, then you've sequestered carbon. We need to look at that on uh, what's the efficiency of it, right? And then how much carbon? If you're talking about the offset market, you're buying an external of carbon. So we need to see how much carbon actually is produced from the agriculture crop and then and it's injected underground. So you, you need to go down on the, not, not the whole crop or its value, but you, you need to look at how much carbon is injected underground. I think that's right. And there's, there's other techniques. I wanted to ask you about another, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of mechanical systems being pursued right now. And there's a, a Gates-backed company in Vancouver that has these big machines that basically try to pull carbon out of the air and sequester them in the form of some kind of fuels or things to be buried. I'm, I was curious what your thoughts are around the efficiencies in those kinds of oh. mechanical approaches. And the theory looks good, but the, what's the practical and what efficiency is that, that needs to be seen. So right now, the best option I see is like planting more trees or not cutting down what's there. In a way, I, I sometimes worry that in a way it gives up also for general public, like, you know, you'll be able to suck the carbon from the air efficiently without that, so that we can keep on burning, we can keep on, uh, you know, driving monster trucks. Um, uh, there are those new techniques coming. And then, you know, unless they come in and become a viable commercial option, um, still we cannot count on them right now. I mean, if, if you don't uh, explore, then you're not going anywhere. So so there should be a research, there should be research and development for, uh, for these projects and we should encourage them to get it. But unless um, they can prove it on a commercial scale, it can be done. So far, I think it's, um, you know, in, in my book, it's on a lower priority right now because it's still in an academic stage where people are trying. And we know, I mean, we know forests sequester carbon. There's no, right. there's, there's no question whatsoever there. So, right, uh, right. And then, uh, you know, and, and also the, the biggest you know, thing is to maintain the forest that's already a forest, like, you know, yeah. the Amazon forests are the mature forests. Because this, uh, some of those trees are like you know over 100 years old, so they have they have a lot of carbon sequestered. And once mm-hmm. we, uh, once those have been uh, destroyed, it's going to take a lot of a long time to get that uh, carbon uh, re- uh, you know restocked. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Anub. It's been very enlightening to hear your words.
That's all for your AI injection. As always, thanks so much for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this episode, we've got a two-part article series digging in deep on carbon sequestration with AI. It's up on our website at zionics.com. That's X-Y-O-N-I-X.com slash articles. As always, please feel free to tell your friends about us, give us a review, and check out our past episodes at podcast.zionics.com or on your favorite podcast platform. That's all for this episode. I'm Deep Dylan, your host, saying check back soon for your next AI injection. In the meantime, if you need help injecting AI into your business, reach out to us at zionics.com. That's X-Y-O-N-I-X.com. Whether it's text, audio, video, or other business data, we help all kinds of organizations like yours automatically find and operationalize transformative insights.